right, welcome to season three, episode six of the Louisiana Law Reviews Legalese podcast. I'm your host, Willie Walsh, and I'm joined with uh, my co-host, Mr. Joseph Taylor Cooper. Hey, everybody. It's me. Just here to remind you about my friendly service of Turbo Wax on 512 Plank Road. Well, why, why are we still doing the Turbo we are Wax? Legally, we are legally obligated to mention them in every podcast for the rest of the season. Oh, my gosh. Well, figures. Well, thank you, Turbo Wax. We uh, very much appreciate your sponsorship of the Legalese podcast. Do you have a hump in your back? Is your wife miserable? Are your kids angry? Well, we can't really help you with that, but at Turbo Wax, we can definitely make your car shine like the day it came off the lot. You can't, is that really what they put on the card for you to read? Uh, okay, I wrote it. I wrote it. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, Turbo Wax. Turbo Wax, 512 Point Road. Okay, we get the... How many times do you have to say this in an episode? Five. Oh, Turbo Wax, Turbo Wax, Turbo Wax. I think we're good now. All right, listeners, we have uh, Jacob Irving from the Law Center. Uh, in the studio today to talk about cannabis law. So, Jacob, thank you for coming. No problem. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Jacob is a, he's the president of the LSU Laws, Louisiana Cannabis Law Society. Uh, he's a student at LSU. And then tell us some of the other work that you do that uh, is cannabis related. Yeah, so, I guess I um, help write the legislation for the medical cannabis system uh, in Louisiana, as well as uh, several uh, subsequent bills. So, uh, I've worked on the legislative side, and then I've worked for companies who actually are that you have to put in a special application mm-hmm. to get a license to actually operate under that law. So then I help with the licensing side. And then now that businesses are actually starting to open up, I'm doing more corporate, transactional, um, more business law, but with a cannabis twist, if you will. So pretty much when you graduate, you're going to be a one-stop shop for anybody trying to get into the cannabis field, right? That, that's, the, that's the idea, yeah. And I see a lot of dollar signs going your way. <laughs> So, besides your unique career path, and I will say it's unique, um, how exactly did you get involved with, uh, the, with cannabis advocacy? So, I um, was a cerebral palsy patient. I had a stroke when I was in the, uh, like, in the womb or shortly thereafter. They're not quite sure. But it left me with something called a spastic quadriplegic. So, I had a muscle control disorder that affected all four limbs. Uh, which initially left me uh, paralyzed for, I guess, the first six years. And then I had, like, a wheelchair for a while and a walker for a while. It was, like, a big deal to, like, try to overcome it. And uh, during that time, I was always studying neuroscience. I was always really interested in going to medicine. I actually never thought I was going to go to law school. I was really focused on medicine. And um, my first year in college, before I switched into more law policy, I was doing bioengineering. And uh, in my second semester, I discovered... Um, some reports that were coming out of Harvard about uh, using cannabinoids, which is a, an ingredient in the uh, cannabis or marijuana plant, mm-hmm. to try to treat spasticity. And uh, it made a lot of sense from a chemistry perspective, and so I thought that was probably the best way to go about doing it. And then uh, I went to an informational meeting about medical marijuana, just because I happened to see it, uh, it was in the news, you know. And there, uh, someone came up to me and uh, was like, hey, did you know you've always been entitled to medical marijuana in the state of Louisiana? And I was like, this person's a crazy person. I had no idea what they were talking about. But uh, they, they showed me a statute and I actually went and looked it up. And uh, 
Yeah, it turned out that medical marijuana had been legal since 1978 in Louisiana for uh, people with cancer, and then uh, they added glaucoma uh, in like the 80s, and then they added my conditions, facet quadriplegia, in 1991, which would have been one year before I was born. So, um, you know, I, they, no one set up this, uh, it had like a legal problem, which prevented the setting up of the actual distribution system. So it was like you're entitled legally to get medical cannabis, but there's no place for you to get legal medical cannabis. So it was like a catch-22, which I found really irritating because it could have been very helpful during uh, that time I was talking about when I went to all the physical therapy and when I was in a wheelchair, it would have been um, a critical game changer. And there's another generation of people just like me who were born every day and, um, they deserve to get access to it. So how exactly would it work? So you could get, I guess for all intents and purposes, just to make it easier, you would have a medical card saying that you're entitled to medical marijuana, but what way would you actually get it? Would you have to just get it from another state or how would you actually be in possession of it? So I mean, obviously it'd, it'd be some kind of a legal way, either federally or through state-wise, but like how would one go about getting that in, in that time period? So during the initial time period, that was the big thing. There was no legal way to do it because the way um, the United States constitutional law works is Article 1, Section 8 gives uh, Congress plenary power over interstate commerce. So all medical marijuana systems have to be entirely self-contained within that state to even have some glimpse at legality without dealing with the federal government. So that was the big problem with our initial law is it was like weird. It was like, sure, you can be in possession of it, but you never really could be in possession of it because you'd have to be in possession of a legal medical cannabis, mm -hmm. which yeah. you couldn't actually okay. get. So in most states, um, in order to make a lot of what I do in cannabis law is there's a series of steps you have to follow in order to make sure that each transaction when someone buys cannabis is actually a legal transaction. And if any part of the step, any one step is out of place, then that transaction is just as illegal as you know, selling cannabis to someone on the street. And so stores uh, and pharmacies and uh, medical marijuana dispensaries, uh, they pay a lot of money to do what's called compliance work, which is eventually, um, well, a lot of time lawyers would only get hired on the back end, you know, when um, poops hit the fan, if you will. Yeah. Um, then uh, cannabis businesses can't afford to do that because the penalties are criminal charges, for instance, or losing your license, which could cost up to a million dollars to get. Uh, you know, serious, heavy penalties involve being out of compliance. So they pay lawyers on the front end to make sure they're always in compliance. Mm. Okay. So where would you like to see uh, marijuana legislation go? Where do you think it's lacking right now? And I guess what are the things that you think could be addressed immediately at the state or federal level? So there's changes coming at the federal and state level. Um, and from the federal level, it's quickly easy to talk about. Just this week in the news, um, President Trump had promised uh, a Republican, Cory Gardner, who's the senator for Colorado, uh, a solution to the federalism pro uh, problem, which I think is a long time coming. Um, for those of you who may not know, uh, the Obama administration in 2012 issued something called the Cole Memo, which talked about essentially outlined principles of federalism, which was like, um, you know, if the cannabis industry is wholly self-contained in that state, and it's legal in that state, and they don't use weapons to traffic it, then the federal government isn't going to come in your state and prosecute your legal cannabis system. But it wasn't law, it was policy. So that was kind of a guidance document, but it really needs to be cemented into law to really outline and protect our federalist system, for instance, because a lot of states are starting to feel like well, this is a Tenth Amendment issue for us. This is, uh, you know, our ability to really um, 
promote the health and welfare of our citizens, to promote the power, our police powers. Like, we don't want to criminalize this. And so Cory Gardner uh, was the head of, I think, the Judicial Committee in the Senate. And so he was blocking all of Trump's nominations to the DOJ because, uh, because of Jeff Sessions' decision to rescind that Cole memo and threaten prosecution of state legal medical marijuana systems or medical or marijuana systems. Well, I mean, that's exactly the thing. You, you know, they say money talks, and, and that's exactly what we were just talking about before. You know, it, it costs a lot of money between the criminal charges, all the uh, permits, uh, even just the product itself. There's a lot of money changing hands over there. And to be able to just come in and say, nope, federal law says it's illegal, this is all done. You know how uh, um, Jeff Sessions had repealed, effectively repealed the Cole Memo. You know that that could mean really big problems. But I think uh, the one good thing that Trump did do on this thing is, is realize that you know money does talk, and, and this is a huge industry now, and um, it's it's just better to keep it alive and, and you know kind of cement those principles rather than try and face those Tenth Amendment issues, which are very complex. And and uh, you know I think it would actually come to a point where you'd have to look at the federal drug scheduling and say, well, Schedule 1 is a drug that has no inherent medical value, but clearly we see every day that people are using marijuana for medical uses and that it has clinical medical benefits. So I, I think that's just something they don't want to wrestle with at all. You're exactly right. I mean, uh, you, first we were talking about it being big money. Uh, marijuana sales just in Colorado alone is a billion dollar industry. And actually, just a couple months ago, they reached the uh, $500 million mark for just tax revenue, just from that industry, just that the state got. Talking about $500 million that actually went into the state coffers, which is uh, something around Louisiana we can yeah. very much use. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, money does talk. And now um, Cory Gardner, the senator for Colorado, was very aware that you can't really win Colorado without the marijuana industry vote. It's, a, it's probably huge. the largest industry in Colorado now. It's, um, it's dominating. And uh, you were talking about the scheduling, and actually, um, a part of that, a lot of that comes from uh, these treaties that the United States negotiated in like the 1972. It's like the United Psychotropic Act, mm. and essentially, it required that all of the, uh, let's say, first world countries who were negotiating that treaty all had to have the same, same or similar drug scheduling. So they're actually, I think, the um, one of the federal agencies is actually uh, soliciting comments about whether marijuana should be. Uh, rescheduled right now. So it seems to me that at the federal level, we need a fix to the federalism issue. What are some of the things in Louisiana that you think need to change? So, well, yeah, before you even tackle that question, let's talk a little bit about the bills that have passed recently. Uh, and I think that you've personally been involved on it. Isn't that correct? Like, like you want to kind of explain some of the new changes in the legislature? Sure. So these two ideas are actually going to tie in together yeah. because, um, the number one thing that I'm fearful of is, uh, so technically right now the system is working. You know, it's, it's in the process of getting set up. The pharmacies are going to open. Their first medical marijuana products are actually going to be ready in September. So in September, you should be able to walk into a marijuana pharmacy, one of 10 in the state, and actually buy a uh, legal medical marijuana product. But the problem is that right now under our law, only there's only, you have to have one of nine qualifying conditions. So not only does that leave out a lot of people who actually need help, it also makes it very expensive for the like 4,000 total patients in the state who qualify for the medication. Because just, just to give you a few examples of what these businesses have to go through to open, 24-7 surveillance. Uh, every shipment has to be police escorted. You know, uh, 
banks charge you an extra rate. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's special taxes on it. Seven percent of your gross revenue goes to the governmental agencies. You know, it's um, you have to hire security. There's all these different administrative overhead that the law requires you to do in order to stay compliant with the state law. And so that cost necessarily, some of it has to be paid for by the patients who may need this medication, which won't be covered by insurance. So I have to pay for it out of pocket. So in all states where this has gone down, they've essentially had to add in more qualifying patients so that the system can actually function. And Louisiana is going to be no different. Uh, my financial estimates and the financial estimates I know people from the industry put together show that the system will crash in about three years, uh, two to three years, if uh, more patients aren't added. So the big one is chronic pain. Uh, mm-hmm. Not only has the data shown that it's uh, really good for chronic pain, uh, data has shown it decreases op- uh, opioid lethal overdose rate, and also the average person can decrease their opiates by about 30% um, by having access to medical marijuana. So, and then also it's, um, it's good for an overwhelming number of patients. Like uh, my estimates in Louisiana show it would be good for about 80,000 patients. Solving the problem with the whole federalism and whether or not this is technically legal, I, I think you know that that would make this industry thrive a lot better because these banks are hesitant to loan out money or to you know even hold their financial earnings just because of the way it's obtained. You know, I mean, do you want to kind of expand upon that? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. I mean, uh, for starters, they're not just hesitant to loan you money; you won't get a loan. All, all equity in the cannabis system is private. You, you, okay. you, you have pretty much no chance um, to get any money. And you're lucky if you can even find a bank which will hold your money. And the reason their banks are hesitant to hold your money is twofold. Not only uh, if it's any type of nationally chartered bank, they can't do it because that might be an interstate commerce. Because it's federally insured. Okay. Yeah, and it's federally insured, right? So that would threaten both those things. So they're not going to take it. So you have to convince a state chartered bank to take your money. And the problem is that states kind of can, under this memo called the Ogden Memo, which got a lot less attention than the Cole Memo I talked about earlier, but it was actually rescinded at the same time by Jeff Sessions. And the Ogden Memo was actually a memo that allowed banks to, uh, basically it was like the Cole Memo, if you follow certain steps, then uh, they won't prosecute you. Yeah, DOJ's not going to touch you. So what it comes down to now is that banks have to essentially hire a separate lawyer who works in the bank who does only cannabis banking compliance law, which believe it or not is like a full-time job. So how do you, uh, as a lawyer, the ethical side of things, how do you necessarily help clients set up dispensaries, help them with the transactional side of things, knowing that you potentially are doing something that's possibly illegal? That's a good point, you know, and um, what it comes down to is being careful and being specific. And all the time you always, first of all, you know, I've always worked under different attorneys being just a student. And what I've seen them do things is you never represent to anyone that it's entirely legal. And you always let them, encourage them to have their own representation, encourage them to do all their due diligence. And then everything you write is pursuant to state law. And every single contract you put forward has to be, this will be litigated, this is covered by Louisiana law, you will waive any rights to bring things in federal courts, this will be a Louisiana law litigated issue. Because I've seen things like, um, I, I know one lawyer I was uh, working under, he had a client in uh, like Washington, right, where it's legal, and uh, I think there was some sort of uh, like contract situation, and. Uh, Basically, the person ended up violating the contract and, like, uh, you know, robbing them, more or less. But it became a contract enforcement issue because the thing they stole was product. And then at that point, it's like, can you go to a court 
and actually claim that they violated that contract. Is that a legally enforceable contract? Do you have a remedy in that? Mm -hmm. And you know, that scares a lot of people. So I've been thankful in that um, so far, all of what I've done has been essentially setting up uh, you know, licensing applications, and I haven't had to do any you know, transactional work in the state of Louisiana as of, as of yet. I'm not writing contracts for them to do anything. And so that part is totally legal, helping them get applications to operate in, in Louisiana because none of the operations have actually begun yet. You know, none of the companies are actually in possession of marijuana, if you will. And so my hope is that some of these federalism issues, I will kind of come out of school with a golden opportunity where these federal issues are taken care of and it's legal pursuant to state law. Um, so that's kind of the hope. Yeah, another good, or another really interesting thing that I, I, I found was that um, patients that use medical marijuana, um, and I think I might have mentioned this on the show before too, uh, patients that use medical marijuana have to use less, uh, smaller dosage of opioids. Um, they're less likely to get addicted. I mean, in this country right now, like when we have this huge opioid uh, epidemic, I just don't understand why a bunch of states don't really, you know, cling on to some of this research and, and, and look to see what the real benefits are, not only to the people, but, you know, like we said before, money talks. Like, I mean, whether you like it or not of course there's going to be people that kind of that bring things back from the states that do have illegal marijuana why don't you cash in on this and let you know rather than have colorado or washington or somebody else you know have their people buying it there and shipping it out you know i i still just don't really understand how um you know the the whole uh marijuana for adult use or even medical use is, is not really caught on that much who are the really big opponents of marijuana legislation, pro-marijuana, pro-cannabis legislation? So historically, it's been um, law enforcement and the district attorney's office. Uh, I say historically because I actually haven't seen them that much at the Capitol this year. It seems like they've been relatively more supportive than they were in the past, although it was a fight originally. These days, I've seen the most uh, people I've seen around is uh, like the addiction clinic lobby which is like, you wouldn't think, but it, it, it's like the people who, if you went to city court and you uh, wanted to do the pretrial diversion program, mm -hmm. instead of you know getting a charge on your record, uh, then they would send you to one of these like addiction clinics where you would go because you're a marijuana addict, and then you would... That was in air quotes, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that was in air quotes, because uh, it's, it's just not physically addictive. I, I think, yeah. I mean, maybe some people can yeah, get addicted to all kinds of things, like yeah, World of Warcraft, yeah. for instance, but I, I think a lot and of times... <laughs> uh, I think a lot of times people go to these things to keep the criminal charges off their record because a lot of bad things happen when you have a drug charge on your record. For instance, you can't, you can't even work in the cannabis industry in the state of Louisiana if you have a drug charge on your record, mm -hmm. which is not only a little ironic, but I mean, you can also get limited from getting bank loans, getting FAFSA for student aid. There's a lot of incentives to go and do the pretrial diversion instead of going to you know, trial, and that's good money for people who are in that business. And because it's been good money for so long, now it's an organization of business who go down to the Capitol to assert their rights. And I, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a lot of that. And then it's also a lot of people who just like, um, other states have done medical marijuana differently. You know, some states did medical marijuana before they even really knew about all the medical benefits. And you know, in some places it, it looks a lot like recreational marijuana. Mm -hmm. That's, nothing like what our system looks like here. I mean, we hear we've got a university-run system that makes pharmaceutical-grade extracts and not even doesn't even sell people the flower itself. 
So, but still, it's like some legislators who are, you know, let's say more old school, uh, you know, older engineers, they look at those states and they're like, well, this is just a precursor for a recreational. And, um, you know, not in this state. It's actually, uh, you know, it's, both issues are true. Some people want to smoke pot, but also it's got good medicinal value for people who really mm-hmm. need it. And so yeah. it's about balancing out those, uh, those issues. So I think it's interesting because really Louisiana isn't doing anything new because this legislation they had on the books from the 70s that you mentioned before, what they're doing is they're just fixing the legislation to make it actually work. So it's like Louisiana was in some ways forward thinking about this and now they're just coming full circle and making it actually work, right? Yeah, I mean, we, we were actually were one of the first medical marijuana states to have a law on their books. I mean, California didn't even do their full medical marijuana system until 1996. But, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, their system did a whole lot more than ours did during that time period. But Louisiana's attracted a lot of attention from um, mainstream medicine and mainstream pharmaceutical companies because of the way our bill is written. And uh, we're the only place in the United States that has... Uh, our state universities overseeing the uh, production of a pharmaceutical grade medical marijuana product. And that's actually really attractive to a lot of the biotech sectors because um, one thing I was always passionate about was like, I mean, if you want to go get a joint, you can go get a joint. It's not, it's not ultimately that challenging, and, you know, in this mm-hmm. day and age. I mean, you can go to Colorado and, and walk into a store and buy it. But if you actually want a pharmaceutical made out of medical marijuana, boy, is that a lot more challenging. And part of that comes from the fact that most pharmaceuticals are funded by federal dollars. So the biotech sector very much relies on tech transfer, grants, and that sort of thing, none of which you can get for marijuana research. So part of what we're doing here in Louisiana is essentially setting up a, almost a state-level FDA, which is going to make state pharmaceutical-grade drugs paid for by you know us, the state. And then um, so it, we're really geared towards being dominant in the biotech sector if we can get uh, this industry up and running. So that's something I'd like to see just because you know, I'm a Louisiana native and amongst all the health benefits and the benefits to patients, we also could really use another industry here in Louisiana. Oh yeah, I definitely agree. And I, mean, I think this is really paving the way for uh, other southern states to kind of get on board and more of the quote unquote conservative states to kind of realize that, hey, you know, this industry isn't necessarily all that bad. It helps out a lot of really good people. and. You know, we, we don't have the recreational or the adult use, uh, as people like to call it. But, I mean, it's not to say that it won't ever come. But at the same time, you know, you can still keep those two kind of things separate. Because we're not, t- exactly what you said, we're not talking about like a joint. We're talking about pharmaceutical-grade marijuana or cannabinoid uh, distillants and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's, it's a completely different sphere. And, um, I don't know, I, I think it's a great way to uh, fill the coffers for Louisiana and, and get back to being on track on the budget. So. So I wanted to uh, build off of that, um, and you had mentioned earlier about the states with recreational marijuana. So what, uh, from the medical cannabis side, is the view about states that have you know, the mindset of legalize it, regulate it, tax it, not necessarily for medical, but for recreational? So how do you all view that? So there are ups and downs to it. and. and Ultimately, I would say that most people are for it because it's pretty objectively good policy, but saying that we're for it isn't the same thing as endorsing what Colorado or California or Washington has done because they've done something I think is um, detrimental to the health of patients and also the medical marijuana industry. And that's that 
California, Washington, Colorado, and I think Oregon too, they all merged their medical marijuana system into their adult use system. So it's basically just one system now. And that, I think, is problematic for several reasons. Number one, I don't think the products should really be the same. You know, like people trying to get high, people trying to get medicine. You know, like I'm not against either one, but... You know, for my cerebral palsy, I want the super bioengineered, you know, some geek in a lab really make it like, you know, focusing on it, you know. And then if you want to smoke a joint at the end of the day, then, you know, that's fine in my view. But like, it's not the same thing as medicine for a serious illness, you know. It's like McDonald's running the FDA. Yeah. Yeah. It's like McDonald's running the FDA, you know. And um, so that's something I'd like to see done differently in Louisiana is I think that. And part of it is because I think it will be done differently here in Louisiana because our system is so, because of how conservative we were, we've really geared towards making the system which really embraces mainstream medicine and is as close to the FDA pharmaceuticals as possible, which I think in the long run will actually serve the medical marijuana industry well by uh, making it distinctive and different from the recreational industry. Because I don't actually, a lot of people see them as being direct competitors. And I don't really view things that way. And I think that the best policy a state can implement is to have the systems uh, complement each other and not be direct competitors. Mm -hmm. um, but, I mean, so there are some advantages, too. Like, for instance, it makes it much easier to expand uh, the medical marijuana system or, you know, deal with the legislators and get things you need, add qualifying yeah. patients yeah. if adult use is there anyway. Because, you know, that's what their main argument against medical marijuana is, oh, this may lead to adult use. So if we go ahead and just regulate that, it would solve a lot of problems in the, um, you know, medical marijuana um, sphere. Yeah, I can see where it could get a lot more people on board. Like we just said, you know, it's, it's a more conservative state. And if you really harp on the point that, you know, this is medical, this is purely medical. I mean, the people can decide later on if they want to add in adult use. And then that the good thing is once once that time eventually comes, this whole this whole sector for medical use is already going to be established. And there's no other alternative but to create an alternative uh, you know, board or an alternative uh, department for recreational or adult use. So, I think I think I think we're both kind of on the same page on that one for sure. So, Jacob, do you have any parting words for us about uh, you know your your goals or hopes with uh, marijuana in the future? Yeah, you know, I um, I'm really hoping this chronic pain bill passes. It's going to be in front of the Senate coming up soon. So, you know, if you know your senator, call them and ask them to support uh, at HB five seventy nine. Uh, one thing I think is cool about it is um, it'll actually bring in a direct $10 million to LSU itself. So every year, LSU would get $10 million off of just that bill, which not doesn't even go to Tiger Athletic Foundation. It go directly <laughs> directly to LSU academics, which I think would be pretty cool. Southern University would also get another around 7 to $10 million. And, um, you know, I, I look forward to things like that and, uh, you know, adding things to LSU, adding things to the community and bringing a new industry around. And... Um, I'm hoping that LSU Cannabis Law Society can, for years in the future, just uh, you know teach kids how to keep the industry being supported and up and running. Awesome, Jacob. Well, thank you for coming in the studio. Yeah, appreciate today. you coming on. Thank you all. All right, this is Around the Bend, a publisher's preview of upcoming student-written articles in the Louisiana Law Review. I'm here with uh, the host of this segment, Mike Siebert, and uh, our guest currently, uh, Ben Wallace, as well as Joe Cooper. So, uh, Mike, why don't you uh, lead off um, as far as what we're going to talk about today? Thanks, Willie. Yeah, today we're going to talk about Ben's paper, A Vote Against State Non-Resident Contribution Limits. 
Ben's a native of Tyler, Texas, but a longtime resident of Baton Rouge and LSU Tiger. He currently serves as a senior editor of the Louisiana Law Review, Volume 78. Before he came to LSU Law School, Ben was a journalist at the Baton Rouge Advocate. And I think that's very apparent, especially with Ben's intro to this paper. Ben, I love this. It was hilarious. You tell us a little bit about Bill, this um, buffalo burger pioneer who has an empire of restaurants in Alaska, um, but can't make any contributions to his campaigning politicians. Can you tell us a little bit about that law, what non-resident contribution limits are and kind of how they got started? Yes. So what is a non-resident contribution limit? Um, In the context of this paper, what that means is uh, there's a state law that limits the amount of money that individuals can donate to campaigns of people running for state office, whether that be governor, state senator, state representative, um, even local uh, positions. And one law might say that there's a total cap on the amount of money people can, can contribute to someone's campaign. And then there's another law that says, if you're not a resident of this state or municipality or whatever the local geographic region is, then you can only donate less than that. So let's say residents maybe $1,000 any given year, non-resident $500 any given year, and and that's a non-resident contribution limit. What was the impetus for these rules? Why did states decide to start implementing them? The reason that states like these laws is uh, basically um, the legitimate reason would be preserving a group of um, unity really within the electorate so a cohesive political unit Um, giving people who have the most um, are most affected by these laws more ability to influence them so the theory goes you know, if you live in Louisiana and you're wanting to donate to a Minnesota um, governor's election and you're in Minnesota and you say, well, what does a Louisianan have to do with uh, the Minnesota governor's race? What are your interests? Uh, you know, I'm kind of suspicious of you, so we're not going to let you donate as much. And so this brings up an interesting issue, especially in your hypothetical, because Buffalo Bill is a resident of Idaho but has a chain of restaurants in Alaska where I'm sure he pays a lot of taxes. And so I'm sure he would benefit from some of the um, elected politicians' agendas and their changes in the laws for his businesses. So is that the issue you were trying to address? And how did you attack it? Yeah, so the issue I was trying to address is that there are currently two states that um, have non-resident contribution limits on their books. And those two states are Alaska and Hawaii. And the, different, the, the two laws operate different ways, but um, uh, in my hypothetical, this Buffalo Bill that you've referred to is a resident of Idaho, like you mentioned. Um, he lives there, but actually spends most of the year in Alaska because he has a successful um, burger restaurant, and he's got restaurants all over the state. He hires all these people who work there. Um, it's his primary source of income. And so the issue teed up is Uh, Bill wants to give money to people running for office and who who make the laws that will affect his restaurants and his business and his livelihood. But because Bill is not a resident of Alaska, he potentially could be limited from donating anything at all 
because of a weird feature of the law, but at the very least uh, is, is discriminated against because of his non-residency status. Now, I have a question. Um, we're talking about natural persons here, but has there been any talk about like juridical entities? You know, like uh, Bill has these stands. What about the stands themselves giving a contribution to these local political officials? These are sophisticated restaurants, not just little burger stands. Excuse me, excuse me. Sophisticated <laughs> uh, restaurants. Right, right. Uh, so my comment does not go into the potentially separate issue of whether... Um, First Amendment limitations on these laws, which is my main thesis, that the First Amendment acts as a prohibition on state non-resident contribution limits. Um, my comment does not go into detail about distinguishing between real persons, natural persons, and juridical persons. Um, is there stuff out there discussing it? Uh, that's beyond the scope of my limited student author knowledge. <laughs> Well, um, why don't you kind of walk us through your unconstitutionality analysis a little bit and why you think that it violates First Amendment? So, in, in, in general, um, the analysis, the First Amendment analysis that applies to these types of questions falls under the category of what's called strict scrutiny, um, which means that um, because this type of law burdens a First Amendment Right. Um, in this case, it's uh, political expression and association, which courts have held to be core First Amendment rights. Um, the government can only pass such a law if it's narrowly tailored um, to a compelling government interest. Um, so the analysis goes something like this. Uh, one, what are the types of compelling interests that have that are that courts have said this is good enough? to withstand strict scrutiny in the political association context. Uh, and then the next, the next question is, well, assuming that we could find a compelling government interest, would these types of laws be considered narrowly tailored? Is there a way to draft it that it would be narrowly tailored? And how my analysis comes out is um, really recently in, in Supreme Court decisions, um, the court has held that there's only one interest that states can cite as compelling when it comes to burdening political association and expression in the campaign finance context, and that's preventing quid pro quo corruption, which is, in essence, I give you money, you give me a favor. And if a law is is supposed to be supporting any other type of interest, say, leveling the playing field um, or uh, something else that sort of just a general, we want things to be more fair, so we don't want certain people to be able to give more money, um, that's not going to be a good enough reason. Um, in this context, non-resident, my argument is, non-resident contribution limits um, do not um, address preventing quid pro quo corruption. Um, and the reason is because th they're always in existence, um, or, or there's, if there's a non-resident contribution limit, there's another law that applies to everybody else. Um, so the government is already placing limits on the amount of money people can donate to different people. So to the extent that it, uh, contribution limits prevent corruption at all, they're already being prevented 
this separate non-resident uh, qualification doesn't do anything else to um, prevent that. But uh, the bigger thing is it's, it's both over-inclusive and under-inclusive because if there's a cap in terms of a dollar amount, um, nothing prevents someone from giving a small amount of money to receive a small favor. Um, and then on the other hand, once that cap is reached, uh, the law then bars all kinds of contributions that have nothing to do with corruption, all kinds of legitimate reasons. So the Supreme Court hasn't ruled directly on non-resident contribution limits and whether or not they violate the First Amendment, right? That is correct. The current state of the law um, is that there's what's called a state circuit split. And um, Alaska's Supreme Court has said this type of law, Alaska's law in particular, um, does not violate the First Amendment. Amendment. So it upheld the law against a constitutional challenge. Um, the Second and Ninth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals um, have held otherwise, saying these are invalid under the First Amendment. Um, this U.S. Supreme Court has uh, denied cert, I think, in all of those cases. It definitely did not hear any of those uh, cases. I can't remember whether um, an appeal was even sought in all of them, but at least a couple of them. So it is never directly... Um, ruled on the issue and left these state circuit split in place. So you said there's two states that have affected non-resident contribution limits so far. In your research, have you noticed any trends or any other states that may be interested? Is this something that you would expect to um, expand? How recent did they impose these non-contribution limits? And are other states thinking about it? So Alaska's um, the, the first one of these to appear anywhere was Oregon's, and this was in the early to mid-1990s. Um, and that law was ultimately held unconstitutional um, by a district court in Oregon, and that was upheld by the Ninth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. Um, Alaska then passed one shortly after that. I want to say that was the late 90s, and that one is still in the books, and under Alaska's Supreme Court ruling is valid. Um, Vermont tried a few years later, and that one was rejected as unconstitutional by and ultimately affirmed by the second um, U.S. Court of Appeals. And then Hawaii, uh, most recently, and I want to say mid-2000s, maybe a little bit after that, I can't remember the exact year, um, passed a similar law. That law has not been challenged. Um, so do I think that there's any reason states would be more likely to pass such laws now? Um, maybe. Uh, and the reason I would say, which is entirely speculative, is that as it becomes easier in the wake of Citizens United and other U.S. Supreme Court rulings to donate to campaigns indirectly um, and candidates amass large funding from all kinds of sources in other states, uh, perhaps states get more protectionist and try to figure out ways that they can limit out-of-state money in their state campaigns. And they say, well, hey, um, this might be unconstitutional, but there's a little bit of an issue. Uh, courts are kind of both ways. Hawaii's law has never been challenged. It's doing fine over there. Um, so why don't, we, why don't we try to pass one of these? Um, yeah, it certainly makes this discussion a lot, a lot more pertinent. Awesome. Well, Willie, did you have any other... No, I did not. I uh, I gotta say though, this is the this is gonna be the last one of these segments we do, and I have to say it is. Uh, I was so grateful to be able to do your topic because I think it is incredibly a well written piece, and it's super pertinent, and um, and I think it will have a lot of 
um, future benefit to the legal community because you're kind of developing a topic that is going to be discussed uh, potentially a lot more. Yeah, I'm fully expecting a Supreme Court citation um, <laughs> within the next uh, term, for two terms max. Uh, and obviously this is going to be everywhere on the legal blogs and uh, the campaign finance circles. Really hot stuff. Yeah, check it out. Yeah, yeah, I, w I would expect nothing less from from uh, you, Ben. You are a uh, resident scholar here at the Louisiana Law Review. Distinguished scholar, I believe. Dis distinguished scholar, excuse me. Yes, hey, yes. Hey, Ben. Oh, hey, Joe. Good to see you. So, Ben, I've got a question. Does You might not know this, but uh, was there anything that had to deal with whether or not you had to be actually a U.S. citizen, or is it just necessarily residency, status as a resident in the state? Because... What if you, for instance, say that you were from Canada and you lived in Alaska, uh, you owned a business there, so technically you weren't a citizen, however, you were a resident of the state. Would that actually like change anything to do with the law, in particular to, I guess, Alaska, or does that actually come up at all? You have stumbled upon one of the more interesting developments in this part of the law. Um, there is a federal law that prohibits uh, foreign nationals um, and I can't remember how that's defined, but from contributing to uh, U.S. campaigns. Um, this law was recently challenged under the First Amendment, and um, some of the cases cited as support for invalidating it were the same cases that I'm using to support my argument. Um, this case was a case called Blumen, B-L-U-M-A-N, and uh, it was filed in the District of Columbia Federal Court, and District Court said... These laws are okay. Why? Well, it distinguished laws barring contributions from foreign nationals from state laws that bar contributions from residents of other states. Why did it distinguish it? Well, it talked about the scope of the political community. And so basically they said, well, the federal government has an interest that is high and keeping foreign influence out of U.S. elections. Um, and this law is narrowly tailored to that interest. This is different from state laws that do the same thing as uh, in the context of other residents because residents of other states have more of an interest in what's going on in other states than foreign nationals do in U.S. elections. Um, that case, uh, cert was sought at the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court denied cert. So, um, to answer your question, it's an important difference. Um, and some scholars have written that perhaps under this Blumen case, um, state non-resident contribution limits uh, are more constitutionally okay. Um, but because the court explicitly mentioned uh, the, and distinguished non-residents non in the state context from foreign context, uh, that argument's probably pretty weak. Yeah, good stuff. Answer what I need to know. Well, uh, well, Ben, thank you so much for coming in the studio today. We uh, just uh, just as a reminder, his uh, article is currently available. Uh, you can find it on the Digital Commons website for the Louisiana Law Review, uh, LSU Law. Um, you can also find it on the uh, LSU Law or LSU Law Review's website. Thank you. Well, thank you, Ben. Thank you, Mike, and uh, thank you, Joe. Thanks, Ben.
All right, listeners, that brings us to the end of this show. Uh, we'd like to special give a special shout-out to, um, to Jacob Irving for coming on the show today um, and discussing his cannabis advocacy. Also, I'd uh, like to uh, remind listeners about Ben Wallace's article that uh, was recently published in Issue 2 of Louisiana Law Review, A Vote Against State Non-Resident Contribution Limits. Thank you, Ben, for coming on the show. Joe, you got any, you got any words for us? Uh, no, pretty much just uh, thanking TurboWax again for their continued sponsorship. Wait a second. I thought you said we only had to do it five times. We've already done the five times. Yeah, I know, but you got to give them a good, good, good little shout-out. What are we getting from this sponsorship that, that makes it worth it? A lot of the things I can't tell you, legally. Do you even get a car wash? A little bit more than that, Willie. This is the worst deal ever. Oh, my gosh. This is so bad. How did, how did, we, get, how did we get sucked into this? Well, it all started I was at the Varsity watching a Cool Modi concert. And then... Next thing comes to next. I'm in the back alley behind Barcadia signing a contract to God knows what. I have the worst co-host in history of radio. Again, thank you, Turbo Wax. Thank you, Turbo Wax. All right, listeners, that wraps issue, er, episode six. Thank you for listening. <laughs>